when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Blue sky thinking turned into farce this week as the Financial Times revealed a number of outlandish schemes commissioned by Home Secretary Priti Patel to address asylum seekers crossing the English Channel in boats. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the FT with me, Sebastian Payne. First up, we'll be discussing some of the bizarre ideas of Priti Patel to tackle what she sees as illegal migration and why so much of government policy is being reflected from Australia. Joining me to discuss this topic is political columnist Robert Shrimsley and special guest John McTernan, also a political commentator and a former aide to prime ministers in UK and Oz. And later, we'll be looking at the latest on coronavirus in the UK, the serious warnings from Downing Street about a tough winter ahead and the introduction of yet more local restrictions. Political editor George Parker and health editor Sarah Never will guide us through. So Robert, welcome back. And John, welcome to your Payne's Politics debut. Thank you. Hi, Seb. Well, this week, the thing that struck me is when we were writing these stories about these madcap schemes from the Home Office was, I couldn't believe it, that when this this story came in our direction, it felt this simply can't be true. And then when you put the call in and feel that actually this, there were people in a meeting, very sensible, smart people in Whitehall, who actually came up with these serious ideas, I felt completely baffling. Robert, can you sort of recall any times when you've written or seen things in politics that you've thought, that's so mad, it just can't be true? I think I remember once upon getting a leaked memo of all the blue sky thinking that Tories were doing about how they could make William Hague seem more normal to ordinary voters when he was conservative leaders and including things like, you know, visiting a cake shop in Yorkshire and all kinds of bizarre stuff like that. But I think what's remarkable about this one is the fact that it went from the kind of brainstorming session to being quite seriously considered. I mean, the only thing, as far as I can see, they didn't look at was a giant yellow diversion sign which could point people back to France. But perhaps when we dig a bit deeper, that'll be there too. Well, John, I have to ask, in your career in political advisory, you must have had some very farcical moments. The worst blue sky thinking ever in um, uh, British political history is surely the poll tax. But we have never had anything this outlandish because it is literally rehearsing King Knut, isn't it? You're trying. You're trying to reverse the tide. You're trying to reverse the waves. You're trying to. You're trying to do things which are actually in violation of UK law, let alone international law. It's much more like um, an episode of the Thick of It. They, the session at that time in the Thick of It, when the advisors are all sitting around doing yes and ho, throwing the ball from one to each other. Indeed. Well, whereas this story did not appear to be true at first sight, there is no doubt that Pretty Patel is serious about taking a tougher line on migration. Let's get on to what the Home Secretary has been brainstorming. By the end of August, over 5,000 people arrived across the English Channel to claim asylum in the UK from dinghies. That's more than doubled the whole of 2019. The issue has become politically charged, with right-wing figures such as Brexit Party leader Nigel Farage pressuring the Johnson government to do something about it. 
And so they began brainstorming ideas from setting up a detention center on Ascension Island, a volcanic rock that's 4,000 miles away from the UK, to building a bizarre wave machine that would push the boats back into France. It may sound like a joke, but Tory MPs such as Laura Trott are taking it very seriously. Here's what she had to say to the BBC. I have no idea whether this is something that's actually being considered or not. Um, I've seen the reports, but I, I'm very, very clear that from a humanitarian perspective, this is an incredibly dangerous journey. It's being driven by human traffickers. It's causing untold human misery. And we do need to look at steps to stop it happening. Robert, let's begin with the general background on this, because the number of people crossing the English Channel has been a concern for people on the right in particular for many years. But it's only a tiny fraction of the 34,000 odd people who claim asylum in the UK. Do you think this is being whipped up at all for political means? Yes, of course it has. Absolutely. I mean, we, we know from looking at the opinion polls that from the moment of the Brexit vote, immigration went down the, the pecking order of issues for the public. It's still important to people, no question, but it's dropped down the salience in their minds. What we've seen um, since just around the start of the pandemic is the Brexit party and Nigel Farage whipping this up. And it is, I mean, let's not pretend it's not an issue. The, the number of people coming over the channel has doubled, but we aren't still talking, we're talking about relatively small numbers, a few thousand. Farage has been whipping it up. The Conservatives have used immigration you know, on and off for over two decades, at least in modern times. And they do not want to be outflanked. And they also see the political benefits of something that the Labour Party might be able to be portrayed as being soft on. So I think we should be in no doubt that while there is an issue, the Conservatives see the political gain in this. John, we've already touched on this briefly there, but what did you make of this idea of moving asylum seekers from the UK 4,400 miles away to the South Atlantic on Ascension Island? Expensive, um, unfeasible. There are no direct flights. You'd have to bring people onto British soil to get them onto a flight that could eventually get you down there. So it actually, um, you can't, once somebody's claimed uh, asylum in the UK, move them to a different territory without actually breaking the UK law. And it sounded to me as though somebody had been thinking, what do the Australians do? Oh, they use Nauru, they use Christmas Island. Why can't we do something like that? I mean, Nauru and Christmas Island are near Australia, but people had to get to Britain first in Australia. Quite often people are picked up on the bus, bus diverted, and they're taken to Christmas Island or to Nauru. This isn't. This was no interception interdiction. Uh, in the in in the in the Australian way, because you can't interdict a boat and then then take it all the way down through the Atlantic off to Ascension Island. It was symbolic, obviously, of a certain new edge to immigration policy. But it seemed much more like an idea being thrown at what people imagine the views of some British voters are, rather than an idea that was generated to actually ever be practically implemented. Well, I think there was actually a YouGov poll out this week which probably spoke to what the government is up to. It said that 40% of Britons were in favour of the idea, including over 60% of Conservative Party supporters. But even if they liked it, someone who was nonplussed was Alan Nichols. He's a councillor on Ascension Island and he was phoned up by the BBC and he didn't exactly approve of the idea. I would have thought that uh, it would be extremely expensive and a bit of a logistical nightmare to get asylum seekers here to Ascension because of, um, you know, the, the fact we are very isolated and uh, I don't think the whole thing would be very feasible, to be quite truthful. Robert, we know that Priti Patel has looked at some locations potentially a bit closer to the UK. There's been talk of Scottish Highlands or the various Channel Islands and that sort of thing. So it does feel as if even if they're not going to send asylum seekers 4,000 miles away, they are going to set up some kind of offshore centre. 
They are looking for something which has a significant deterrent effect to people and says, you really don't want to come to Britain. It's going to be really unpleasant for you. Why don't you stay in France or wherever else you're coming from? And I think that that's the fundamental point. Now, there are plenty plenty of holding centres already, lots of them in Kent, which is almost full. So what we're talking about is something that has a more symbolic impact. And that's what Priti Patel is interested in. And I think voters will see the argument for this and see the appeal for this. So it's not necessarily bad politics unless it becomes truly unpleasant and a symbol of a British attitude towards people that even voters who are concerned about immigration have difficulty with. Now, John, you mentioned earlier, a lot of this is inspired by Australia here. You mentioned you've got Nauru, there's Papua New Guinea, there's Christmas Island as well. Part of this seems to be this growing obsession amongst British Conservatives with Australia. Why do you think this has become such a potent thing. And of course, we have to mention the role of Tony Abbott, of course, the former Australian Prime Minister, who is now an advisor to the Johnson government. One of the reasons why people focus on Australia and Australian solutions, and it's left, it's left and right, which is that there are probably no parties closer to each other than the Australian Labour Party and the British Labour Party and the Australian Liberals, their Conservative Party, and the British Conservatives. And I think you have to also have to say there were daily votes coming to Australia when I was working for Julia Gillard. We had daily press conferences where we announced how many people had been on the boat. Um, when Tony Abbott became Prime Minister, he stopped those press conferences and he told the Navy, the Australian Navy, to stop the boats coming. So when people asked about it, he, he said it's operational for the, uh, the forces, we can't talk about it. There was a, a huge loss of life in the sea and the boats. There was, in a sense, a bipartisan desire to stop people smuggling, to stop this happening. And Australian politics is a bit more you know, rough and tumble, a bit harsher. And I think that is definitely an attraction to the Conservatives. But they should look more closely. The Australian Conservatives, the Liberal Party, are actually committed to 20,000 refugees coming to Australia every year. Now, if that was in Britain, that'd be an equivalent of 50,000. So we're not even touching that, that, that number of the people coming. But I think there's an implication in some Conservative thinking that Australia does this. Australia's harsh. They're trying to pick the rough bits and not have the, the other element, the balancing element of justice. I would actually add to that. I think one of the things that's interesting in this is that if we look at the review taking place of judicial review processes that Lord Folkes is, is running for the Ministry of Justice, one of the big issues that they're focused on with judicial reviews is the human rights powers that judges have taken to themselves. And that is particularly relevant to immigration cases. So I think sometimes we need to look across the whole piece to what's going on here, which is that the British government is looking for a considerably less sensitive approach towards asylum seekers and indeed to refugees. And I think we will see a tougher line taken throughout the piece. And even though it will be easy to sort of mock some of the more madcap ideas that are being batted around, there is a clear trend here and this is happening. I think the problem with that approach from the government, and I think that is absolutely right what Robert is saying, it is not the fact that um, you can get across the channel that's creating a supply uh, of refugees. The forces in the globe which are displacing people, whether it is civil unrest, whether it is autocratic leaders, whether it is famine, whether it's climate change, those are simply increasing. The issue is you have to tackle the cause, not the symptoms. And that's one of the functions, one would hope, of the new combined DFID and Foreign Office. We used to say this in the Blair government, if we don't go to Africa and help, they will come to us. And that still is true. If we don't go to them, they will come to us. Now, Robert, let's look at this in some other policy areas too, because ever since the Johnson government came into office last year, they've been talking about an Australian-style points-based immigration system, which again, I think speaks to some of the themes John was talking about. It's an image of what Australian politics and policy is, as opposed to the reality here, because their immigration system is actually about encouraging people to come to Australia, whereas the Johnson government and people like Priti Patel in particular are using it to paint something that's very different, that's much harsher. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think sometimes it comes down to just having something you can explain to voters when you say, what's your alternative? Our alternative is this. And there's a mechanism which appears to work. And it's from a country whose politics are admired on the Tory right. It's an easy one to go for. It's also interesting when you hear them talking about an Australian style deal <laughs> with the European Union, if we don't get a trade deal, that, that appears mainly to mean WTO terms, but Australian style sounds a lot better. Look, governments all over the world look to other governments of a similar political hue for ideas, for things that have worked, things they can nick, and they talk to each other. And I, I think that's completely reasonable. And frankly, I'd far rather our governments were talking to other democratic nations about how they tackle things and just making up ideas in blue sky thinking in the Home Office. The one I think I was going to mention, by the way, Seb, is when you think about the expense and the effort that's going to this, there is another option available to the British government on the specific issue, which is to pay the French, pay Calais much more to try and stop people getting into the channel to come to Britain in the first place. And that's an option that's been available for a while. But it looks like a shakedown of the British, the French demanding money. But actually, if you were looking for a quicker solution, which might actually work in the short term and might also be cheaper. I think there's something to be said for paying the French more to help police this. I think that's a really interesting point, Robert. And John, this obviously reflects, of course, into Brexit, as does everything, that if you really want to deal with this, going to France and trying to work better with those authorities would be the obvious way to do it. But instead, we know the Johnson government is taking a pretty hard line on Brexit and doesn't really want to cooperate with European nations, even when they have the most obvious answers to this. So one of the successes of the Blair government was exporting the borders of the UK into France. UK passport control is currently in France. It's not actually, it's not a Dover, it's a Calais. That is a cooperation uh, which took a lot of negotiation to actually transfer your borders. And that is endangered in the Brexit talks. And that could be a, a huge loss for the government if the French decided actually will repatriate British borders. British borders are going to be in Dover. Uh, and if the French official said, we don't really care who leaves the country, you get on that train, we're not checking your passport. Britain's problem to deal with it in Dover, and that could lead to a much bigger flood. So when you abandon cordial relations and have insert combative ones instead, you are put at risk a large number of things, not just a few things. And you may think you're fighting over uh, fisheries and state aid, but actually you, you, you risk relationships in all kinds of areas that you really think are important for you. Robert and John, thank you. On to coronavirus. Boris Johnson returned to the Downing Street podium this week with Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty and Chief Scientific Officer Patrick Valens to warn that the pandemic situation in the UK has reached a critical moment. Either Brits follow the latest restrictions or tougher rules are coming down the tracks. Almost 17 million people are now already in tougher lockdowns, with harsh fines introduced for those who break the rules. But the Prime Minister warned that further such measures are almost certain for the rest of the country. And I have to be clear that if the evidence requires it, we will not hesitate to take further measures that uh, would, I'm afraid, be more costly uh, than uh, the ones we put into effect. I don't think it's what the British people want. I don't think they want to throw in the sponge. They want to fight and defeat this virus. Sarah Neville, can you just begin by giving us a general overview on the current situation with coronavirus in the UK right now and why the PM is taking such a stern line? Well, cases are rising relentlessly. I was very struck on Thursday looking at the latest figures from the test and trace system, which showed a rise of 60% in positive cases just over the course of a week. But one of the 
interesting things about the shape of the outbreak that we're seeing now is it's much more localised. The UK was relatively unusual among European countries in that in the first wave, the virus was pretty evenly spread across the whole of the country. And that's unlike Spain and Italy, for example, where the outbreaks were were much more localised. But there are some signs that we're now heading much more in, in that direction of concentrated but relatively geographically limited outbreaks. We haven't yet seen this huge rise across the whole of the country. Well, that's something that Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty said when he also appeared alongside Boris Johnson at the podium this week talking about the local outbreaks. Now, it is possible that in this next uh, stage of the epidemic here, we will have a pattern more like that, where it is more highly concentrated in certain areas, lower rates in the others. But it is far too early to say that. We've got a long winter ahead of us and a lot could happen over that time. George Parker, that was a pretty bleak message from Professor Whitty there saying that it is going to be a long winter. And the general mood in Westminster this week has been that it's only a matter of time before more restrictions are brought in. Yes, you have to ask yourself why Boris Johnson was actually holding that press conference in Downing Street this week, because there was usually when he has these things, there's something big to announce, some new restrictions or some new plan. Really, this was an update. And you had you, when you watched Mr. Johnson surrounded by his scientific and medical advisors, you realised that the message really was that batten down the hatches, things are going to get quite a bit rougher. At one point, Patrick Vallance said that the virus is not under control, things are heading in the wrong direction. So plainly, the message was intended to get out, that things were going to get tougher. And also, Boris Johnson sending a not particularly coded message out to his own MPs, some of whom think that the restrictions have already gone too far, and him saying there's no other alternative, we're going to fight this virus, and using that rather strange phrase of his, we're not going to throw in the sponge. But yes, the message coming out of the press conference generally was one that was rather somber in tone. And interestingly enough, though, offset just a few hours later by a study by Imperial College, which suggested actually the R rate might just be coming down slightly. I know there were large margins of error, but nevertheless, that was sort of a sort of little whiff of hope, I think, amongst the otherwise rather dark news this week. Yes, as you say, George, that did seem to suggest that perhaps the rule of six and other measures were starting to have an effect, although what the study showed was still the highest prevalence of the infection that had been seen since the study started. So the people behind the study were careful to say that it still demonstrated how important it was for people to uh, to stick to the new regulations. It felt, George, if you were looking for a reason behind that press conference, it was very much just for the Prime Minister to say, this thing is very serious and you have to follow the rules. And one of the things they've done this week is to introduce hefty new fines for those who break the rule of six and those who break quarantine as well. And typically, this has given us a backlash from Tory MPs who are not very happy. They see its intrusion on their liberty. And we saw a parliamentary rebellion that sort of rose and fall incredibly quickly um, from about Monday to Wednesday. Well, Tory MPs have been very upset about the way the government has been throwing out new rules and regulations and new fines, almost like confetti. And we had this ludicrous situation where overnight on Sunday, a whole load of new regulations came in, which had not been announced by the Prime Minister the week before. There'd been no parliamentary debate whatsoever. They included things like loud music in pubs, a duty on employees to tell their their bosses that they're off sick, various new statutory regulations involving companies and directors. 
And yet there'd been no announcement. We only found out about this because a correspondent on the Daily Mirror had somehow gone through all these regulations and found out about it. So you had to ask yourself, you know, how are members of the public possibly meant to keep tabs on what the government's doing? And of course, famously Boris Johnson this week failed to describe properly what the rules were as they applied in the northeast of England. So there was this rebellion by Tory MPs. They wanted a proper parliamentary debate and then a vote on new measures. The government was facing a pretty serious problem and they defused it by basically saying that in future they would try to give MPs a debate on new nationwide lockdown measures. But of course, lots of the lockdown measures are only affecting regions at the moment or more local areas. But they gave themselves a get-out clause saying that they needed the right to act in an emergency. So they've diffused it for now, but nevertheless, the discontent on the Tory benches about the way the government is handling this is growing. There's a huge swathe of the country, almost entirely represented by Conservative MPs, where there are very few cases at all, right? Southwest of England, East Anglia, the Southeast, parts of the Midlands, where there are no cases. And those MPs are saying, hang on a sec, why are we having these new England-wide restrictions, for example, on pub closing times, when our constituencies aren't really affected? Well, it seems, Sarah, the biggest problem the government is facing is one of messaging. And I think that moment where Gillian Keegan, who's an education minister, went up on the radio and she said she didn't know what was going on in the northeast of England. And then four hours later, Boris Johnson appeared and he didn't seem to know what was going on. He got the measures mixed up again. And there's been some chatter in Whitehall that a new traffic-like system is going to come in where areas are green, amber and red to try and get much clearer because it is pretty apparent that that's the reason why COVID has been spreading, because people just don't seem to know what's going on. Yes, I think we can all look back at the extraordinary clarity of the initial message that we were given, you know, back on March the 23rd, when lockdown began, stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. That was stunningly effective. But since then, I think there's been so much confusion. And That's only been added to by the fact that we now have these regionally differentiated restrictions. And this is something that the government really does have to get on top of. I mean, I was struck by Boris Johnson making the comment during the press conference on Wednesday that if there was a huge surge in COVID cases, the NHS wouldn't be able to do anything else. Now, that really dismayed people in the health service. That's the very opposite of the message they want getting out. Because what happened in the first wave was that people stayed away in huge numbers, waited to seek help until their diseases, sadly, in many cases, were more advanced. And that's contributed to a huge additional strain on the NHS as it now tries to start restoring services to some sort of normality. So there was quite a strong and fairly public pushback at that particular bit of of messaging from Boris Johnson, which was just another example, I think, of how some of this communication is really going awry. And George, obviously, there are going to be more measures at some point. That's the general mood music at the moment. And I think Tory MPs that I've spoken to are particularly annoyed about this 10pm curfew for pubs and restaurants. They want to try and force a vote on that. Will it go anywhere? And if the government does ban households mixings across more places, how are they going to accept that? I suspect in the end, it will be awkward and embarrassing for Boris Johnson, because in the end, 
I suspect that, um, in fact, I'm pretty sure Keir Starmer and the Labour Party will probably come in behind the government. Keir Starmer has been very keen to basically align himself with all the measures the government is taking, provided they're based on some sort of medical underpinning. So I think probably Boris Johnson wouldn't lose such a vote. But nevertheless, it's a sign really of this big and growing disconnect between Downing Street and the parliamentary party. I mean, it's you know, it's an extraordinary state of affairs this week. I mean, we could get used to this, but for the chairman of the Tory backbench 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady, to be leading a rebellion against the prime minister of the day, it's extraordinary. I mean, Sarah and I have been covering British politics for a very long time. Normally, the chairman of the 22 is someone who operates in the shadows. He sorts things out with the prime minister over a glass of brandy in Downing Street, and you barely hear from him or her. It's been extraordinary. Yes, I can think back George, to the days of Sir Marcus Fox, the ultimate behind-the-scenes operator. I can't imagine what he'd have made of these kind of interventions that we've seen this week. Well, the one thing we have seen is how scrutinised MPs are being for their behaviour, George. And the extraordinary case of Margaret Ferrier, who's an SNP MP, who I don't think any of us had particularly heard of or come across our radar. And she released this extraordinary statement where she said she had shown signs of coronavirus, of which, of course, meant to self-isolate. She then hopped on a train, got to London, gave a speech in the House of Commons, was then tested positive, and then hopped back on a train to go halfway across the country all the way back up to Scotland again. She's now lost the SNP whip and there's huge amounts of anger. And of course, this brings back memories of the Dominic Cummings and Barland Castle fan. It does make you think that the amount of anger towards Miss Ferrier, that if anyone in the government trips up over these measures, then they will be dealt with very brutally. Well, exactly. I mean, people are being, their forbearance is being stretched to the limit in abiding by these regulations. And at the very least, they expect the people setting the rules to obey them. And Margaret Ferrier, this SNP MP, as you say, she's had the whip taken away from her. I think the SNP leader, Nicola Sturgeon, very wisely has decided to completely cut her adrift. She doesn't want to be left facing accusations of hypocrisy because, of course, SNP MPs and indeed Miss Ferrier were very keen to call for the head of Dominic Cummings earlier on in the year. And we're recording this on Friday, of course, Seven. It's just come out that Nicola Sturgeon wants Margaret Ferrier to step down as an MP as well. That's interesting because if she does step down as an MP, there'll be a by-election in a seat in the west of Scotland where the Labour Party held that seat up until, I think, 2017. And plainly, it will be an opportunity for the Labour Party on its knees in Scotland for so long to make some sort of comeback in a symbolic West of Scotland seat ahead of elections to Holyrood next May. So that's an interesting side effect of this. And it's also a test for, you know, the SNP's governance in Scotland, Sarah, because Nicola Sturgeon has been very critical of Boris Johnson and how he's coped through the coronavirus pandemic. So you can see that's why she's moved so quickly to criticise this, because she knows that her performance in this crisis is her biggest electoral weapon for the Scottish Parliament elections due next May. She could also, I think, reasonably point to the fairly robust way she dealt with her own chief medical officer in Scotland, who was found to have travelled twice to a second home within pretty short order. She had been persuaded by Nicola Sturgeon to step down. So I think she realised that that speedy action, you know, in stark contrast to Boris Johnson's refusal to really condemn, certainly to cut loose Dominic Cummings, did play very well for her. So that, I would think, is factoring into how she will handle this latest issue. 
And finally, George, on a totally different topic for a moment there, Brexit has been chuntering along this week. And it feels as if we're about to reach a very critical moment in the negotiations that Boris Johnson is going to speak to Ursula von der Leyen. And it feels like there's going to be a political intervention to try and unlock this thing, because, of course, time is ticking away and we are slowly getting towards the October deadline for reaching that trade deal. Exactly. We are. The realistic deadline, I think, for this is probably the beginning of November. We've got a European Council meeting coming up on the 15th and 16th of October, where European leaders will get together and assess the state of negotiations. My sense of the talks this week is that there was no massive breakthrough, but they were constructive, and that Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen now are not just talking about the substance of the negotiations, which we know very well are coming down to issues like state aid regimes and, and fisheries, but also getting to the point where they're starting to talk about uh, the choreography of a deal. At what point do the talks go into this famous tunnel where the negotiators go into the last lap and start to do the real deal-making? And if all goes well, and of course that's a big if because there are still significant differences between the two sides, you could see a situation where the negotiators try to hammer out a deal the last part of October. They start to address some of the issues that Boris Johnson raised in that controversial internal market bill. And if the talks proceed well, you could see a situation where Boris Johnson agrees to take those clauses out of the bill. Ursula von der Leyen agrees to drop the threat of legal action against the UK. And hey, presto, a deal comes together sometime in the early part of November. But I said there's still a long way to go, but that's certainly at least one scenario which seems to be being discussed between the two sides. Well, we'll be coming back to Brexit very shortly. George and Sarah, thank you very much for joining. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Josh Delamere. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.